Welcome to the Doggy Dan Podcast Show, helping you unleash the greatness within your dog. Hello everybody, Doggy Dan here from the Doggy Dan Podcast Show and today I am with Adam Boyko, who is the co-founder, I should say, and the chief science officer of Embark. Now, Embark are the most complete dog DNA testing um, company on the market. They provide dog owners with information about their pup's breed, uh, your dog's ancestry, your dog's health, and more, lots more, loads, loads more, which we're going to talk about today, all with just a simple cheek swab. So Adam is an associate professor in biomedical sciences at the Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine, and he's focused on the genomic investigation of dogs. So a fascinating man to have on our podcast show today. Um, Adam's research has addressed fundamental questions of dog evolution and history, disease, trait mapping, and advancing genomic tools for canine research. So Adams, he's co-authored over 40 peer-reviewed scientific papers, including research in nature, science, and the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. He's also a graduate of the University of Illinois Urban Campaign and received an MS in computer science and a PhD in biology from Purdue University before his postdoctoral work at Cornell and Stanford. So as you can see, Adam is a highly qualified man that we have on the show. It's an absolute honor to have you here today, Adam. Welcome. And I can't wait to start talking about dogs with you. Thanks so much, Dougie, Dan. I'm doing great. Uh, Glad to be here. Yeah. So for those of you, for those people listening who are going, wow like me going what does all that really mean can you can you tell us about what does all that really mean i mean wh- i'm just fascinated how much can you really tell what tell us about embark i know there's a three questions that <laughs> yeah indeed it's well it, it's it's a fun time to be a dog geneticist i mean we we got the dog genome in 2005 and it's really just accelerated everything we've been able to do and the tools we've been able to develop and, uh, you know, and that was right when I was getting my PhD. So can I jump in there before I forget to ask you, I, I don't want to keep doing this, but what do you say we, you found the dog genome in 2007? It would, in 2005 is when the boxer genome, uh, Tasha, the boxer was sequenced. And so we've been using the boxer genome and now, you know, hundreds and hundreds of additional genomes that have been sequenced since then, uh, to fuel a lot of this investigation and develop tools so that from a simple cheek swab now, we can say a lot about a dog. So you're saying the boxer genome was effectively found 2005, specific for that breed. Yeah. So the Human Genome Project uh, finished up the draft sequence in 2001, and uh, and then they did a chip genome project. There was a dog genome project, the cat genome project, the horse genome project. We've gone out now to platypus and uh, you know armadillo and everything. You know everything's got a genome now. But uh, 2005 was sort of the dawn for the dog genome. Got you. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. And and so carry on. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I just had to know a little bit more about that genome side of things. So yeah, and and so what is what's Embark involved in, and what's what's the score with all of that? So my my research into dogs, you know, has focused a lot on you know identifying the mutations that underlie the huge amount of diversity that we see in dogs. And also understanding how different populations of dogs relate to each other, not just 
uh, pure breeds that we think of, but uh, village dogs that live all over the world and have been living all, all over the world for thousands of years. And, uh, and, and then also trying to answer um, complicated genetic uh, health questions that, you know, owners and breeders are really interested in things like why are some breeds predisposed to cancer? And can I predict whether my dog is likely to get allergies or hip dysplasia or things like that? And um, all of those investigations require lots and lots of genetic data. They're not easy questions to answer. And, you know, particularly for, for complicated things where there's lots of genes involved, things like cancer, um, things like longevity, you know, why do some dogs live longer than others? You need samples that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of dogs that are, that are looked at genome-wide. And it was becoming clear in my research at Cornell that there wasn't really a way for an academic lab to do that. There's not the funding yeah. um, from, from research grants that's going to support that kind of big scale you know, research. I mean, it's almost like some of the super collider research that, you know, physicists do yeah. or, you know, massive genomic projects that are done in, in human um, genetics and are supported by, by institutions. And there just isn't that degree of funding for dogs. At the same time, dog DNA tests, when I was starting out, were, were not very scientific and were not based on a lot of data. So in my research lab, I could tell a lot more about a dog than what any person buying a commercial dog DNA test would be able to figure out. And so it was this idea, if we could meld the two, if we could use the research grade platforms that researchers use uh, to do dog DNA testing, we can give owners lots more insightful information about their dog, uh, much more scientifically valid, uh, accurate, comprehensive information. And at the same time, we can build this database that's going to allow researchers to make the discoveries that we, that we really, really want to make. And what's great is you, and we can build that research without using government funding either. So the citizen scientists, the ones that are buying the dog DNA tests are the ones that are supporting the research. Wow. That's really clever. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Well, starting out, we didn't know if it would work. <laughs> so it was really nerve wracking, uh, but it's been, it's been very fun. And um, the, the response we've gotten, uh, you know, customers have really love the experience. They love the fact that they're kind of giving back and they're helping make new discoveries with dogs that are going to eventually improve the lives of dogs. Um, you know, so we have uh, you know, high ratings on Amazon and, and we've built a team of really smart people that are really fun to work with. So it's been, you know, very exciting. Cool. So t tell us like, um, what exactly would you get back in, in like, if, if I was to get one of the tests for my dogs and um, that's one of the questions I have, I don't know if you can, is it possible for me to New Zealand to, to get one of your test kits or is it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. Fortunately on the website, you're going to be paying in American dollars okay. and not uh, New Zealand dollars. And the shipping times are going to be a little bit longer because uh, we process everything anywhere in the world. Uh, yeah. Anywhere in the world. Um, yeah. but everything gets processed in the United States gotcha. and the kits are shipped out from the United States. I wasn't sure if I did a dog swab on my dog's mouth, whether it would take too long for my dog to, um, you know. No, the swabs are very stable. That's yeah. why we use really? um, the the saliva, and it's got a stabilizing fluid in there. The instructions are are, are fairly straightforward, and about you know over ninety eight percent of the samples we get back are are usable. And uh, we can always send you another swab if the first one doesn't take. Well, that'd be fascinating. It'd be fascinating to get you back on the show at a later date when I've got my results back because I got some interest. Sure, I, I believe <laughs> I believe I have a whippet pit bull mix. Oh, not, yeah. So that's been one of the surprises is all the different pit bull crosses yes. 
that we've seen. I didn't think that we would come across Chihuahua pit bull crosses wow. or yeah. Jack Russell Terrier pit bull crosses. Yeah, yeah things that you, you try not to think too much about uh, what went into that dog. Yes, and I have a Catahoula leopard dog. Oh, nice. Which is mixed with something. So goodness knows how, how a, a Texan cattle dog got over to New Zealand, but he's one of the only ones in New Zealand. I know that. It's, wow. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah, those are those are a neat breed, the uh, web paws and everything. Yeah, yeah. So – so what can you actually tell us? Like if I was to do one of these swabs on my dog or you get one in from somebody, like in terms of predictions or telling us that it does have cancer or doesn't and hip dysplasia or how big the dog's, can you give us an idea? Because for me, it's a little bit sci-fi. It's like, really? <laughs> can you really tell that? And with what degree of um, certainty? Yeah, so we go back um, three generations to look at the mix that's in your dog. And sometimes – we can go back a bit farther and detect things that are down to about a 5%, um, you know, influence in your dog's genome. Uh, so we'll, you'll get the, the breed mix and, and uh, a hypothetical family tree uh, with that mix. So you can see whether all the poodle is coming from one parent or, oh wow, you know, there's poodle on both sides of the family tree or something like that. Wow. You can actually tell that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we can also, um, uh, we can also tell if there's any relatives of your dog that have tested with us. So, wow. you know, people get surprised and they're like, oh, my gosh, and I found a you know brother of my dog halfway across the country. Or in my case, um, uh, there was a cousin of my dog that I didn't even know existed. That's just one town over. So we've, we've gotten to go now and visit my dog's cousin. And it's kind of amazing. You know, like they've got different fur, but it's sort of the same chassis that they're built on. And they have many of the same health complications and mannerisms and things like that. So it's really yeah. neat to see uh, the genetic influence that way. Uh, most people don't know their dog's family medical history, right? And so that's hilarious, isn't it? It's kind of a neat thing to to look at. But but we also test for over 175 um, different uh, health conditions. Wow! So mutations that are known to cause you know blindness or bladder stones or bleeding disorders, you know, or or or, or drug sensitivities, you know, things like that. Wow! So we can we we can test for that as well as tell you how big your dog is expected to be based on its genetics. Um, we can, we can uh, go through all the different coat color genes that are known. So we can say what your dog's, um, you know, fur should be like, uh, how long should it be? Is it going to be curly? Is it going to be straight? Is, you know, um, uh, all, all those different, you know, trait things. Um, and then we also do uh, what I think is neat coefficient of inbreeding. Yeah. Right. So lots of dogs are inbred a lot more than humans are inbred. Yes. And, uh, and people don't usually know if that shelter dog that they adopted is inbred or not. Um, and, you know, shelter dogs tend to be more outbred than yes. show dogs, purebred dogs. Um, but it definitely, there's a whole distribution. And, and there's a whole distribution in purebred dogs, too. Some of them are still quite outbred, um, but many of them are very inbred. And, and we actually see that there are, um, you know, correlations with that. It, it has an effect. If your dog is more inbred, it's not likely to live as long. Wow. Um, if you, if you breed the dog, it's not going to have as large of litter sizes as if it was outbred. And we had, we had a paper published on that. And, uh, and it's also, it's going to have more health complications while it's alive as well. Wow. So nature almost shuts that in breeding down to a certain degree. Yeah. So when you're looking at, um, what I call village dog populations or natural dog populations around the world, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of dogs in each one of those populations and inbreeding is very low. Mm. So genetically, they're very, um, 
you know, of, of course, they're, they're in a very stressed out environment. A lot of them aren't getting the, the food or protection from parasites or predators, you know, things like that. Um, you know, but genetically, they're, they're sort of, that's how dog populations are supposed to be. Wow. Um, yep. And so when we've done selective breeding or if you do backyard crosses or, you know, things like that, it can definitely lead, um, it can definitely lead to issues. Yep. And the neat thing is not only can we tell you how inbred your dog is, we can tell an, a breeder if you were how related two dogs are and how inbred the litter would be if they mated those dogs. Wow. So now they have this tool that they can use to find dogs that are not going to create highly inbred litters uh, to breed. What do you actually come back with? Do you say it's 67% inbred or what does it actually mean? How do you give the feedback? How do you, what's the measure? Yeah. So, so that's what we, that's what we do. So we say your dog has an inbreeding coefficient of 25%. So that means that means twenty five percent of its DNA, the 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 chromosome it inherited from the mother is the same as the chromosome it inherited from the father. Yeah. So if there's any issue with that chromosome, you've got two copies of it, and you're going to have that issue. Gotcha. Right. So normally you just need one working copy of a gene, and you're fine. Yeah. It, and so the, the the problem with inbreeding is if the inbreeding happens to be over a gene that's broken, now you've got, now because of the inbreeding, you've got two copies of that broken gene and now your dog is going to have an issue. Ah, gotcha. So 25% inbreeding coefficient is way too high. Um, that's, that's the same as if you were to breed siblings together, the litter would be 25% inbred. Wow. And, and some dogs. And that's actually not very uncommon for purebred dog. Breeding. Whoa. So Tasha, Tasha the boxer, so the first dog that got its genome sequenced, was 61% inbred. Oh, gosh. Right? So they, they deliberately picked an inbred dog to do the genome, because I don't know if you know anything about genome sequencing. It's not like reading a book where you start at the first page and you read all the way through. It's like taking a book, ripping it apart, copying it a whole bunch of times, and then trying to glue it back together. Gotcha. Okay. And so it's a lot easier to do that if you have an inbred dog because you've only got one set of chromosomes you're trying to glue together instead of two. So so when you say 61% coefficient for that boxer dog, that's that's pretty incestuous in terms of like incestuous being a word we... Right. I mean, boxers in general tend to have higher than average inbreeding coefficients. Yes. So the whole breed is probably around 40%. Whoa. Uh, and then, of course, you know, in some lines, there's been there's been relative crossing line breeding that's that's elevated it even further yeah i mean i do other other breeds you can name which you found to have very high inbreeding coefficients yeah the the highest inbreeding coefficients are probably the norwegian lundahoons yeah so that breed almost went to extinction wow um and so it's just a few individuals that you know managed to um to to make the lines that they have now and so you get all these sorts of conditions that are related to the inbreeding so they have um, you know, multiple extra toes on each paw wow. and they have, you know, other, other, other kinds of serious uh, disorders. And so there's a lot of interest in trying to, can we keep the genes that we want, but yep. bring in a he healthy genes um, and try to retain as much of the breed's characteristics as, as possible while we rescue it. Wow. 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 I, I see that. I mean, here in New Zealand, I sometimes look at some of the breeds and because we're a small Island with a much smaller, number of dogs here as you can imagine right country of four million people so yeah i mean we even see like golden retrievers it's a very very popular breed 
Um, you know, but they were they were founded in the UK, uh, in Scotland, and so the US only has a portion of the diversity in the breed. Yes, and you can see that US golden retrievers um, tend to have slightly higher cancer rates and tend to have slightly shorter lifespans, um, and it's it's just a difference of the genetic diversity that's there. Wow. So very, very interesting. I could chat about just that all day. And <laughs> fascinating. What's the, um, when you do you get people saying, can you test for the purity of my breed? As in, is my dog, um, you know, a hundred percent Rottweiler? Do you ever get people, can you do that sort of a test? Yeah. So, so we do have people that, um, are really interested in that. And, uh, and, and the thing is we, we don't, do breed purity tests. That's what registration organizations are doing. We will, we can check a pedigree. We can confirm, you know, if you give us the parents or grandparents that those are actually the grandparents or parents of the dog, but a a, a pedigree can go back. I mean, for these breed clubs, the pedigree goes all the way back to the founding of the breed. Mm. And so the only way you're going to know are all of the ancestors of this dog from that founding breed um, is to is to go into the pedigree because DNA, well, we can go back easily three generations and sometimes, you know, four, maybe even five in some cases. Um, as you're going further back, each ancestor is on average only contributing half as much DNA as the next generation. Yeah. Right. So you get half of your DNA from each parent. You get about a quarter of your DNA from each grandparent. You get about an eighth of your DNA from each great uh, grandparent. But the thing is, there's a lot of variation. So some great grandparents are going to be contributing 20% and some are going to be contributing 4%. Oh, is that right? And so as you get back, as you get back six or seven levels, yes. now you're to the case where some of those ancestors actually don't wind up contributing any DNA to you Wow. because, because of the way that the chromosomes get inherited and transmitted through the generations. It's just sort of like playing the lottery. That's fascinating. And if you're back 10 generations, actually most of your ancestors didn't, you didn't get DNA from any, from most of your ancestors. What? Only a minority of them actually contributed to your DNA. And is that um, the same with humans? It is the same with humans. Yeah. It's actually even worse. So you're saying that some of my ancestors didn't really contribute much to me. Didn't give you any DNA, right? <laughs> so, you know, one of, one of my brothers, I'm 53% related to my other brother. I'm 47% related. Wow. That's so funny. Right. And it, it's just, Depends on whether we inherited the same chromosomes from mom and dad or not. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm learning way more than I thought. And it's it's, and it's worse in humans than it is in dogs because dogs have 39 pairs of chromosomes and humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. I'm learning so much more today, Adam. So you're not you're not even flipping the coin as many times in humans. I, I tell you, why I'm chuckling to myself is because I have a I have an Egyptian grandfather. And um, I've always <laughs> said I'm quarter Egyptian, but I I, I think I'm more like 60 percent Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right yeah no definitely i have this real passion and love of life and uh i was watching an egyptian or arabic food show no it was cairo it was um food 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 stalls in cairo and i could just associate with all these men who are just getting so excited about the food and hugging each other and you know it's like yeah, my wife was laughing she's going that's you that's you it's like yeah so now it explains that i'm yeah, I so like my grandfather. So that's so funny what I'm <laughs> what I'm learning today. Alrighty. So basically, let me just get this right. If people just want to get a DNA test, or they want to know how much of their Pekingese, if that dog is eighty or one hundred percent Pekingese, 
are you saying that the your tests are probably not the right ones for them? Is that what you're saying, Adam? I just want to clarify that for people. Well, no. If they want to know if their dog is 80% Pekingese or 100% Pekingese, uh, then you absolutely they should do a DNA test like Embark. Um, but just you know, realize a DNA test isn't going to tell you whether your dog is 99% Pekingese versus 100% Pekingese. Okay, I can't go down to that level. You know, like once you once you get below five percent resolution got it you, you there's not that certainty if you want certainty get a pedigreed registered dog oh i see actually get one from the because they have done all that got it lovely yep wonderful but if you're okay with a 99 percent pekingese then you know by all means yeah yeah so i was reading through your website adam you, you've traveled the globe studying dog diseases and traits and uh i was wondering are there any sort of breakthroughs or stories that stand out whilst you're abroad that uh, come to mind that you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, of course, traveling is always uh, a lot of fun. Um, nearly all of this research I actually did with my brother, Ryan Boyko. Yeah. Uh, so he was a grad student at UC Davis in Yale um, doing some of his own research, but then we were also doing research together um, on, on village dogs. So lo- lots of fun times uh, traveling with him. And um, I, th- I think one of the biggest breakthroughs we had um, was sampling dogs in Nepal and having collaborators sampling dogs in Mongolia. And uh, and I had a, a, a postdoc in my lab, Jess Hayward, that did a bunch of the sampling too. And um, and getting back to the lab and sort of analyzing those samples along with all the other samples that we had collected around the globe um, and seeing this clear pattern of high of an increase in genetic diversity that you would normally see um, associated with the, the origin of a species, right? So, so where a species originates will have more genetic diversity than where the species spreads out to after it originates. Okay. In humans, if you look at the most diverse human populations, uh, they're in Africa. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then as we migrated out of Africa, only a subset of the diversity migrated out. Uh, well, with dogs, um, you know, people have been trying to figure out where dogs came from. And there were some, you know, nice studies with wolves. Um, there was dogs, you know, and you compare dog DNA and wolf DNA. Um, but a lot of these studies were just looking at either not looking at the whole genome or they were looking at purebred dogs, right? Because that's what most geneticists had in their freezer. And, and the problem with doing that is it's kind of like trying to understand human origins by looking at European royal families is you're, you're missing out on a lot of the diversity picture. And so that sort of aha moment when you come back in the lab and you're looking and everything is saying, wow, we, we actually have finally found the diversity signature. Uh, it's clear that dogs came from somewhere in Central Asia, which wasn't a place that people have been thinking about um, before. There's not really a lot of fossil records coming from there. Um, you know, most of the fossils are in, are in the Arctic or in Europe yep. uh, or, you know, in, in um, there's some in the Americas now, you know, that have been analyzed and we've been able to get DNA from. Um, so that, you know, that was really exciting that like we could actually detect this sort of thing. So do, are you saying that you're pretty sure that that's where the dogs kind of originated from, if that's the right word? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot more research is going to be needed yep. to pin down with more precision. Like it's it's a big area, Central Asia, yep. uh, as well as to pin down the timings. Yes. Um, you know, was it 15,000 years ago? Was it 30,000 years ago? I mean, the story right now looks like the wolf population that led to dogs split off from the rest of the wolves that we see today gotcha. around 30,000 years ago. Yep. But we don't see anything that's a dog in the fossil record until closer to 15,000 years ago. So maybe they split off, but they were kind of 
wolves for a long period of time before they evolved into dogs, or maybe we, we just have a spotty fossil record and we actually had dogs for longer than that. And we'll discover that someday. Wow. Fascinating. So <clears throat> something I would love to chat about is, and you'll have to help me here, but it feels like there are different, um, some, let me get this right. Some dog breeds are more sort of man, man-made developed through breeding and inbreeding and you know what i mean for example the boxer dog seems to be a good example of that and i don't get me wrong guys i love boxer dogs love my jumping boxer dogs and yet there do seem to be other dogs which are more they've they've developed naturally due to the location they've that they've grown up in such as the eskimo dog yep or the pharaoh hound can you touch on that i mean it's not my area of expertise so i'm struggling to get the right words here but you know what i'm saying yeah is that actually too specific kind of these ones were man-made and these ones are natural because um yeah it fascinates me right so so there's there's clearly a continuum of what i would call dog populations so i, I reserve the word breed for a kind of more specific yes uh, type of population okay. and so you know the first wolves that were the progenitors for dogs. You know, clearly wolves are wild animals living in wild populations. And you had an offshoot of wolves that suddenly liked hanging around people, right? It became better for them to scavenge from human hunting villages than it did, than it was for them to do their own hunting. And, and in order to scavenge well, you need to uh, evolve a tameness, so that you can tolerate the presence of people like wolves don't typically like people around. Um, You need to also be able to take social cues from the people, be able to intuit whether this person is a danger to you or whether this person is somebody who's going to provision you and is friendly. Um, And then other things can be helpful, like a, like a smaller body size. So you're less intimidating. uh, So you don't need as many calories. Um, And now you're kind of, dining alongside the people. So you don't need to train your offspring how to hunt. Uh, you can have, um, you don't have to have seasonal litters anymore. You can actually breed more than once a year and you can very quickly uh, generate more and more dogs and you can make more and more wolves. And, and so now we're to the point where, you know, there's a million wolves in the world and there's a billion dogs in the world. Yep. Right. Um, so that, so it was a really successful strategy, <laughs> um, but those first dogs, I mean, they, they are village dogs which are still the majority of dogs in the world today. So you, they're, the breeding is not controlled by people at all, even though they're living in an environment that is, that is human dominated. Yeah. So, so even, so I would call them natural populations of dogs. They're, you know, they, they're, they're the number of dogs that are going to be in that population depends on how much free food there is around. Gotcha. And that's, what's going to control the numbers, not people controlling the breeding. Yes. Um, a very small subset of them have gone back to being truly feral. So things like dingoes that don't require being in a human dominated environment, they can actually survive on their own. Um, but nearly all, if you go to the middle of a random rainforest, you're not going to see dogs unless there's people. So the dingo, for example, is that still classed as a, a dog, a dog breed? It's a pure dog breed. Yeah, it is absolutely, it is absolutely a dog. So it's related to other dogs. Uh, it went through the same domestication um, event that all other dogs went through, but then it, when it uh, arrived to Australia nearly 5,000 years ago, um, it, you know, spread out and it, you know, the, the environment in Australia was such that they could 
they could survive without human help. And so they did. But it's effectively a dog who just went wild. Yep, absolutely. I love it. Oh, I feel like I need to ask for forgiveness from the dingoes. I've always thought that. Right. So we wouldn't call it a breed because we're not breeding them. Got you. But it's still a dog. Uh, it's a it's a population. I, it's so funny. I really feel quite bad. in about, I don't know why, but I, I've always thought it wasn't a dog. I thought the dingo was a different a different species. Well, it, it, no, it was it was debated. I mean, before we had genetics, we didn't know. Before we had genetics, we weren't even sure that dogs came from wolves. Yeah. Yeah. Got you. I mean, Charles Darwin thought there was so much diversity in dogs. It has to be a mix of two or more wild yes. ancestors because no wild ancestor has as much diversity as dogs do. Gotcha. And so he thought it would be jackal and, and gray wolf and other people thought coyote and something else. I see. Yes, yes, yes. And that's where I'm coming from with the dingo. I thought that, yeah. But when we did the genetics, it's clear it's, I mean, cause all these can interbreed, right? They're all in the same genus. You can have koi dogs, you can have wolf dogs. Um, but, but clearly it was this, you know, gray gray wolf population from, you know, 20 to 30,000 years ago that led to, led to dogs today. So tell me, why is there such great diversion? Why do we have chihuahuas and uh, Neapolitan mastiffs? Why is there such a huge range? Or am I asking us, is that a silly question? I mean, I'm just thinking about fish, you know, you have such a diversity of fish. Yes, but with fish, the diversity is usually different species of fish. Whereas this is the same species. It's yeah, and it's not only the same species, but you know, most mammalian species originated millions of years ago. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And dogs didn't start diversifying until fifteen thousand years ago. So why? Why why do we have such diversity? Uh it's because um because dogs were tame and we could use them, we could breed them for our purposes. Uh, Yes. Right? Got you. Makes sense. So, so cats were domesticated about 10,000 years ago and we do have different cat breeds, but you don't see nearly as, you know, you know, you don't see mastiff sized cats, which would be very scary actually, or even chihuahua sized adult cats, right? You don't have that same body size diversity. Yeah, got it. You don't have the same kind of working yeah. uh, diversity for retrieving versus, you know, like, yes. And, and it's because like we've lived around cats for almost as long as we've lived around dogs, but Cats' utility is in the fact that they can reduce the rodent population. Yeah. And and they're solitary. You can't motivate them to do what you want to do. That's for sure. But dogs are motivatable. And so because of that, we've bred dogs to for, to do yeah. all sorts of different things. Like, you know, almost anything you can think of, uh, we've bred a dog to do it. So that makes total sense. The man, man's input has uh, had that infa- uh, effect. Yep. Right. Right. So, and, and, you know, people also like dogs that look unique. So when you, yep. you, when you have a weird mutation that, you know, leads to a spotted coat, like that gets, that gets selected for. If you have a weird mutation that leads to super short legged dogs, then that gets selected for it. So, you know, it's the same mutation that's in basset hounds and corgis, you know, and all these short legged breeds and dachshunds. Um, but it, it arose once and people decided they liked it and then they just bred it into whatever breeds they wanted to be short. So, so just going back to my original question, the pharaoh hound is – what is the pharaoh hound? The pharaoh hound is a, is a dog who just moved into the, the Arabian area. Uh, I mean, I want to say Egyptian. <laughs> I'm being quarter Egyptian. I'm fascinated with the pharaoh hound. It's like this weird, interesting group. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, so one neat thing about uh, a dog breeding is that they are 
very creative and very confusing with their naming. Yes. So the the Newfoundland dog was actually um, uh, the the breeding stock for that. Um, the the foundation stock was coming from Labrador. Yes. And the Labrador Retriever came from Newfoundland, right? So the the feral hound is a, is a hunting dog, but it's the hunting dog of Malta. Malta, yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, so it's not relate. It's not closely related to other Egyptian dogs. No, gotcha. It's closely related to other Mediterranean dogs, so like Sicilian dogs and uh, you know things like that. And so is that? Would you say that's a that's just a dog that's gone over to Malta? It's been bred a few times in breeding. It's developed that breed, and it's um, right. I don't want to. I don't want to. What, what's the word? What's the correct terminology? I don't want to say a man-made breed, but yeah. So we. I, I mean, I call it kind of a traditional breed. A traditional breed. Um, some people refer to them as indigenous breeds or um, land races. What'd you say? Land. Land race. Land race is another term that's sometimes applied to these. And that's sort of saying that those people in that area, in that land area, develop that breed through inbreeding. Yep. And it's a. A traditional breed, yeah, from that from that area. But 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 using traditional breeding methods. So yes, you know you're you're breeding a dog to perform a certain function. Yes, uh, not to be shown in the show ring. So you're you don't care too much about the coat color. You just care about whether it can work. You actually don't care too much about its lineage. So you're 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 willing to you know I really like this dog and you know crossed it with another dog. Yeah. Um, functional that that yeah you're, you're just looking for these functional crosses and if it works out you know great and if not you kick those out to the curb you know yeah. and and so that's been the process of dog breeding uh, you know for 10,000 years I mean we've had sled dogs for 9,000 years we've had sight hounds for 5,000 years we've had molosser kind of fighting war dogs you know for thousands of years yeah. um, but it was only I mean it really didn't pick up steam this pedigreed dog breeding until the Victorian era when you started to get hundreds of breeds that were being defined by foundation stock and forming closed populations that you, that you weren't allowed to outcross from. So just, just trying to separate, for example, you got the Afero hound that does seem to differ though from your dingo because your dingo is a truly, it hasn't been bred. It's just right. So there's, so we're not breeding dingoes at all. So dingoes are our natural population that descended from domestic dogs. And so the so I put the dingo in the natural population of dogs, sort of uh, natural population. Is that the right word? Yep. And village dogs. So those are going to be natural populations living in a human yeah. settled area. And so are there any others like the dingo? I think that's my real question because I, I watched a lovely movie called The Last Dogs of Winter. You may have heard of it. It's about the Eskimo dogs and uh, the is it the the right up there in the so so not really. Um, I think the closest thing would be a New Guinea singing dog, but they are on the verge of extinction. Not a lot is known about them, but they they also, I mean, they're actually the, the cousin to the dingo. Um, we've fortunately been able to, to sequence a couple New Guinea singing dog genomes. And, you know, there is an effort to try to maintain a breeding population of them. The New Guinea singing dog. Yeah. Does it sing? I'm not trying to be funny. It does. Oh, wow. <laughs> it yodels. It yodels. Oh, how beautiful. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of neat that uh, many we some people call these primitive dogs, right? So so one thing we think that all dogs do is bark. But actually, when you look at the really oh, primitive yes. dogs, like 
Chinchies and dingoes and New Guinea singing dogs, they actually don't have the barking phenotype. So, so maybe barking didn't arise as early in dogs as we thought it did, or, you know, maybe it just happened to get lost in these, uh, in these populations. And so the, for example, the, um, the husky and the Malamute and all that sort of those thicker coated dogs, you know, the Eskimo yep. dog, they are, again, they're these, what do you call them? The traditional dogs, the land. They, uh, that's right. So yeah, I mean, they, the Siberian Husky today is a pedigreed dog, like AKC registered Siberian Huskies, but you still see all of those Alaskan Huskies, um, you know, working dogs up there in Alaska, uh, you know, clearly the progenitors of modern day Siberian Huskies. Yes. Um, and, and so you can disentangle a lot of the genetics, um, you know, going on and you can see the traditional breeding practices and, you know, there's different types of sled dogs. There's short distance runners, there's long distance runners. And sometimes we've mixed in other dog breeds to, to kind of help for the racing, you know, that wasn't there in the original native stock. Um, lot, lots of interesting stuff going on. And, and really they're, they're magnificent dogs. It's amazing how well adapted they are for this, like really uniquely challenging athletic, um, you know, performance. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's just, they burn more calories per day on the, on the, during the race than uh, the bicyclists do in the Tour de France. In a day. In a day. They'll, they'll burn 10,000 calories a day. Whoa. You couldn't even feed them enough dog food to make up those calories. You have to feed them raw meat. Wow. 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 Yeah. I'd, I'd love to go and meet those, uh, see some sled dogs just to meet them. Yeah. Yeah. The genetics are, are, are fascinating and just what they can do. And they just, I mean, they're born to pull a sled. That's what they want to do. They're not happy unless they're doing it. Yeah. That's the thing. I, I, I always love seeing dogs do stuff that they want to do. You know, yeah. I don't like to see dogs, which I'm being made to do stuff they hate, <laughs> but those dogs just seem to want to run. It's like stick me on a soccer field. I just love it. I want to play. I want to run. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, um, and, and I also love the fact that they seem to have this hierarchy. I, I may be wrong here, but it, it feels like I, I really want to get someone who's you know a sled dog expert to talk this me through this. But oh yeah, I'll, I'll drop you some names. There are definitely the experts uh, that are will be able to talk about them much more uh, in much more detail than me. I, I have never actually ridden on a on a no, yeah. sled before. The thing which I love is the fact that one of the dogs always wants to be at the front, and I look at my two boys, Jack and Moses, and how they fight over who's the leader and who's in charge. And like, <laughs> oh my god, I can only imagine when you have ten dogs all kind of going. He's the leader. He's in. Yeah. Yeah. I just have one dog, fortunately, yeah. but even she and then we have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. So I'm just checking the time here. I, I would love to know, is there a kind of the rarest dog breed? I mean, you mentioned the New Guinea singing dog. Is there any other breeds which you just found fascinatingly kind of rare or interesting or that you have a, a passion for? Or Well, I mean, some of the most interesting breeds are extinct. So that's about as rare as you can get. Um, wow. You know, so the Kuri from New Zealand, um, which is probably related to the Hawaiian Poi dog and the Tahitian dog and, and all that. We don't really know the genetics of those dogs wow. uh, right now. It'd be really interesting to do a study on it. Um, the the uh, Native Americans had their own dog breeds, many of which have gone extinct. Um, things like the Salish wool dog. So they actually sheared the dogs each year and, made blankets and clothing out of them like sheep because wow. they didn't have sheep. Wow. Um, and, and the coats were just, you know, like amazing for that. Uh, 
Yeah. And I mean, in Europe, they had different working dog lines that have gone extinct. So, you know, they had turnspit dogs. Uh, so some of, some of those short-legged dogs actually wound up working in the kitchen to, to help cook dinner. Wow. That's brilliant. Um, can you, can you think of a time where you've discovered something which blew your mind regarding to this dog side of the, you know, the dog DNA? Something? I, What's the biggest aha? Well, probably the first project with dogs that I worked on as a postdoc. So, um, you know, I got into a lab and, and they had, um, you know, really like top, top notch uh, collaborators working on this project where we're going to like look at the genomes of hundreds and uh, of 80 different dog breeds. Like nobody looked at that many dog breeds before. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming from this statistical background. And one of the neat things you can do with genetic data um, is you can, you can look across the genome and you can find areas of the genome where you have the signature that, wow, there's something going on here. They're like, there's some sort of variant that's getting selected for in some dog lineages. And then there's a different variant in that region that's getting selected for in other dog breeds, which is not a pattern that generally happens by random chance. Yeah. And so we, and, it looked and, you know, oh, okay, well, we see this region and, and we know we, we, we do the research and we say, oh, yeah, because it's got, uh, you know, short fur versus long fur, right? Or, or we looked at this and it's, oh, these are big dogs versus small dogs. So we had all these different fur measurements. We had all of these different, we had 50 different skeletal measurements that we were looking at. And so we could, we could look at these, the pattern of variation in the genome and we could look at the pattern of morphological variation and we could, we could figure out what was, what was caused, you know, we could find the genes for stuff. And, and so, so I sat down and I, and I looked at all of the places in the genome where we had this signature of there's something going on here. And, and we've been able to hook up most of it. But the weird thing was the strongest signal we saw didn't match up to anything we had measured. Like, what the heck is going on here? Like, what is this most selected region in the dog genome? What's it being selected for? Because it's not related to size. It's not related to shape. Yeah, yeah. It's not related to any of the first stuff we looked at. And so, you know, like as a researcher, what do you do? And it's, you know, I've got this list of breeds that are being selected one way. And I've got this list of breeds that are being selected another way. And I finally had to use Google image search. And I started going down the list of breeds. And very quickly, it became apparent. Yeah. It was ears. What? So it was whether the dogs had prick ears like wolves or whether they had folded or floppy ears like Labradors or Basset Hounds. And so that, because every single breed gets fixed for one kind of ear confirmation and you, half of all breeds kind of have like floppy folded ears and the other half kind of have the, the wolf prick ear. And so, and that's what it was. So it was just like, we really have to think creatively about the different things that we're, uh, you know, selecting for in dogs that you, you can't assume, you know, everything because you have a big data set. That's so funny. Isn't that fascinating? It makes me laugh. Yeah, science by Google image search. Yeah. It, <laughs> thanks a lot, Dan. What was that? Yeah, yeah I was going to say thanks a lot. I, 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 I always enjoy uh, going back and, and telling science stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also makes me laugh because I've got a dog I got from the SBCA. She was called Flopsy when we got her. Flopsy. <laughs> and the reason she was called Flopsy was because one ear was up and one ear was down. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Some dogs, uh, they do it that way. My, both of my dog's ears are folded, but one of them folds more than the other. So she still has that asymmetry going on. Yeah. Well, we, we renamed our dog Inca because we thought Flopsy was a bit, you know, a bit mean. And... Oh, that's nice. That sounds very regal. <laughs> both ears go up in a very, very strong wind. If it's above 25 <laughs> knots, both ears stick up. <laughs> it's oh, nice. Uh, oh, that's just fascinating. That's fascinating. So, so Adam, 
if people are interested in in getting a test on their dog or what what are the main things that they would be kind of using the test for it just kind of if people are worried about their dog's health or they've got a puppy or they want to know is it healthy or what would you say to people and what are they actually going to get back from you just kind of just so so that people are interested in finding out more if you could just give them a rundown on yeah absolutely i think the genetic health screening is is hugely important um so that you have some idea whether there is a risk factor um a lot of them uh there's things you can do you can you can change the dog's environment you can feed them certain supplements you can avoid it entirely um other times at least you know that that risk factor exists so you know what to look out for you can save money at the vet clinic because they can do the right test to diagnose it uh rather than start out with no idea about what's going on gotcha and we you know we've seen countless people write in thanking us you know because it saved them you know tons of money down the road um but even in the absence of the health screen a lot of people find a lot of utility in just knowing which breeds are in their dog because it helps it helps them think about how their dog yes. um, interacts with the world and the kinds of things that the dog might enjoy. You know, there are people that had dogs that were half border collie and had no idea yep. and had all sorts of behavioral issues. And then they, then they put them into like herding camp and things like that. And, and they got a whole new lease on life. Yes. Um, and then lots of people get a lot of fun out of just like going through and seeing, Oh, so that's why my dog's fur looks like this, or that's why my dog's ears look like that. Or, um, or oh, if there's you know there's a cousin of my dog. I can reach out to them. We can. I was going to say yeah, that's why my dog loves the dog around the corner because it's his brother. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I I think that's a great point. I mean I I often look at myself and I say to people, try and guess where I'm from, and they can't. They think I'm maybe Italian or Greek or and I as far as I know, I've got no Italian, no Greek. But when you mix English with a bit of um, you know, Egyptian, Right. this is what you get. And so you can't tell just by looking at your dog, your dog may look like a Corgi, but it may have no Corgi in that breed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, you wouldn't want to just go by a picture to try to figure out what's in the dog. And on the flip side, if you get a dog that's mixed up enough, it might superficially, yeah, it might superficially resemble a breed that's not in there at all. Yep. And some of the breeds that are in that you really can't see by looking at it. like my brother's dog. It, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Harley. She was on the kit box for, uh, you know, for a while. She's on the website, and she, you know, she's clearly this this pit bull mix. Um, and it turns out she's half uh, American pit bull, but she's actually a quarter golden retriever, which you don't see at all because she doesn't have the fur. No. But she, in many ways, acts like a golden retriever. She loves she loves retrieving. Um, she actually carries two golden retriever, uh, you know, health conditions for like vision and ichthyosis. So she's, you know, clearly the DNA are there. Um, but it, and it does explain some of her behavior, but if you looked at a picture of her, you would never guess. And that's, that's 25% ancestry. Wow. Is there anything, are there any markers to do with kind of dominance, uh, of dogs attitude? Can you measure anything like, um, this breed tends to have a very assertive manner or a, yeah. So, so there are breeds that are more trainable or more uh, dog aggressive or more stranger aggressive, you know? Um, and you can measure those axes. The, the thing is most of the variation. So unlike, um, unlike things like size or, or ear type, most of the variation in behavior still exists within a breed. So, like, on average, a yeah. Labrador is yes. going to be friendlier than, say, a poodle. Um, there's a huge range of variation, and it's very overlapping. There's many very, very friendly 
poodles. And there's many labs that are kind of standoffish. Um, and so, so it's not as clean of a dichotomy. And so no, the, makes sense. the research into behavioral genetics is a bit harder and it's been slower. And, and that was one of the impetuses of, of building Embark as well is because now we have a huge genetic database of hundreds of thousands of dogs connected to owners that love to tell us about their dog. And so if we just ask them the right questions, we can start to get at that because it's really going to have to be addressed with lots of individuals and not just treating breeds as completely different in, in those ways. Yeah. And, and, you know, as with children, you know, they're, they're born into this world, but they're such soft clay. So much of it depends on the training, Absolutely. doesn't it? It's, yeah, it's the training is depends on, yeah, on other aspects of the environment and a, a lot of randomness. I mean, like if you just, happened to be in the womb wrong and became a runt, right? Like that's not genetic, yeah. um, but it, it sort of changes everything. I mean, we even see effects yeah. of, uh, you know, of course in the womb, the dogs are lined up in, in a litter. And so a female that happened to be in the womb uh, next to a brother on each side is actually exposed to more um, male hormones in, in the womb. Right. And so that has a, wow. but it's a completely non-genetic effect. Well, Adam, I love it. Right. I, I, we've covered off so much more than I thought we were going to test, talk about today. So uh, it was fun. Huge, huge thank you. So I, I just all right, thanks. People who want to know more about this, where do they go? What's what's the best place for them to go to? Other than you know all of this. Well, you go first. I'll tell them about where. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I encourage everybody. I mean, if you're thinking of testing or if you just want to learn more, go to embarkvet.com. E m b a r k v e t dot com. Um, you can. You can see what the tests do, but you can also, we have educational resources there, uh, YouTube videos, blogs, kind of just explaining some of the research we do, uh, some of the interesting facts about dog genetics and how to understand uh, genetic testing. So, you know, wherever you want to do it, we have stuff for dog breeders. Uh, we have stuff for dog owners. We have stuff for students who just want to learn about genetics and they want to learn about it by studying dogs. Brilliant. And of course, all of this podcast will go on to the online dog trainer podcast site. So the online dog trainer.com. I'll put a full transcription of this with all the links and pictures and, and other stuff. Uh, so you can go there and find out more and uh, embarkvet.com. It is a wonderful website. I've spent ages on it going around and checking stuff out. It's a lot of fun. So you can go there. Um, other than that, guys, yeah, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then remember to click on the, you know, um, be alerted when the other podcasts are coming out. So subscribe to us. I'd appreciate that. And um, if you would like to check out the show notes for this podcast and see some photos of Adam and his work and the dogs, then go to the link, which is theonlinedogtrainer.com forward slash embark, E-M-B. A-R-K. And there you'll get, um, there's a link also on there if you're interested in getting the DNA breed and health kit. There's a link there which will save you $30. So go to that site, our site, theonlinedogtrainer.com forward slash embark, E-M-B-A-R-K, and it will take you straight there and you can have a read through all the show notes and check out anything else you wanted to check out about this show. Adam, a huge thank you. It was absolutely awesome thank you dan and um to the rest of you guys out there have a great day love you lots love your dog and thanks for listening to another episode of the doggy dan podcast show you've been listening to another episode of the doggy dan podcast show bringing you one step closer to creating harmony with your dog